Experience podcast, continuing conversations. My name is Kelly Reham, content manager for The Almanac, the Alliance's premier online publication. This episode features the first installment of Dr. Brian McGowan's Legends interview series. Here, Dr. McGowan speaks with Dr. Joseph Green, past president of the Alliance. Listen as Dr. Green chronicles his CME journey and shares his thoughts on the profession today. If you like what you hear today, subscribe or leave a review where you listen to podcasts. Joseph Green, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. I appreciate you taking time out today to have the, this conversation. Um, always a pleasure talking to you. So uh, you know in a little bit of background that we've done, I've always respected your career, what you've done for the profession. And what I'd like to do today is kind of pick a away, dig into that a little bit more, try to understand um, your perspective on where the communities come as a profession, um, where we're going. Uh, let's start at the beginning. So I, you know, I, I know your origin story started at University of Illinois, as far as your professional contributions. Can you walk me back to, uh, to the time at University of Illinois? What led you to Illinois in your training back then? Oh, wow. Uh, I think I actually have to go back a step before that because um, it's so long ago. And as I look back on it now, I realize that some things that happened earlier that I wouldn't have guessed would have had any relationship to my profession actually did. Okay. And uh, I went to the University of California in Santa Barbara. That was where I went to school. And my parents uh, wanted me to go and be the first person in our family to ever finish college. My dad got through two years and then he went in the Navy during World War II, but they wanted me to finish college. So that's where I went and I played basketball there. I was an athlete and I played for at least a year there until I was no longer quite at the level that I needed to be to make the varsity, although I played full year as a freshman. And so I started looking around for other activities. And one of the activities my roommate had been involved in sounded appealing to me, something called Project Pakistan. And I thought, well, what in the world is that? And I was looking for my major. I finally found my major. My major was sociology, which I later termed as the science of the obvious. But at the time, it was certainly interesting. And it was in the late 60s. So... Um, this was when things were beginning to change rather radically in our society. And this project was a project that historically for 10 or 15 years had taken a small number of students, about seven each year, to Pakistan in the summer and to every major city, every major university in West and East Pakistan at that point in time to meet and, and learn about the culture, meet the students in the culture, uh, do things that they did. We actually played basketball against their national basketball team when we were there. And so I, I got involved in that. I was lucky enough to be one of the seven selected for that. And it was something I'd never been on an airplane before that. So I really hadn't gone anywhere. And, and that took me immediately around the world and visiting eight or 10, 15 countries, something like that, as a junior before my senior year in college. And the reason I bring that up is because the process of getting, selecting a team to go and training that team to go was all experiential learning. And I had no idea what that was. I had no idea I would like it or not like it. Um, and it turns out I 
absolutely loved it without even knowing it, not even thinking about a profession, but I thought, oh my God, this is great stuff. So when I came back that year, our job was to, was to uh, try to get the next team ready to go. And they had to be ready by you know, January or February of the next year, which is 1968. That's when Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were both shot. Bobby Kennedy was shot the day after he left speaking at UC Santa Barbara. He went down to Los Angeles. So we, we were, my political sociology course was write an analysis of one of the people running for president. One of them was Bobby Kennedy. So, I mean, we were right in the middle of everything. And we had to prepare the next team to go to Pakistan, which we did. So in about April, I guess, that was done. State Department calls and says, can you guys take another team to Nepal? And we said, well, after some deliberation, we thought, okay, we could do that. So I stayed on to help select the next team and train that team. And it was now June and ready to graduate. And the person that was going to take them as the adult advisor, who was about seven, eight years older than I was, came down with something, was rushed to a hospital. Bottom line is he couldn't take the team. They came to me and said, either you take the team or they're not going to be able to go. This is to Nepal and Afghanistan and again around the world. And so I had no choice but to take that position, and I did. But now I was on the other side. Now I was using these educational principles to try to train that team and get it ready and to provide guidance when we were in the country. Uh, although historically the leaders were clinical psychologists, I was certainly not that. Um, but at least I had some of the background and the training part of it I felt comfortable with. So that's what told me I wanted to be something other than a basketball coach in life. And so when I came back, I got involved in graduate school. The only place that would give me any kind of scholarship was Michigan State. So I went, I got married as soon as I got back. We went to Michigan State for about two and a half months till I realized the program was terrible. We came home and I applied back in graduate school at UCSB and I got accepted. But then I went to tell the draft uh, board who had now, we now had draft numbers. My draft number was uh, pretty low. So I went in there and said, uh, I, I've been accepted to graduate school, so I'll see you guys later. And they said, not so fast. You're going in the Air Force Monday morning. And so I was committed to four years in the Air Force officer training school and then be a, pi a jet pilot. I no more wanted to have anything to do with that war than, than anything. But somehow I made it through four years and I got a master's degree in educational psychology at the University of Illinois while I was there. So that's, and that all came about because I met someone who also played basketball and told me if I stayed there for all four years, he could make sure I didn't go to Vietnam, I could stay out of the war and I could go on to a PhD program. So that's the short story of a, a very long period of time that was painful, but it got me into graduate program at the University of Illinois. Only one other thing on top of that. I was in educational psychology. Um, I was in counseling psych initially and then into educational psychology until I ran into the vice chancellor of education there, whose name was Alan Knox. And my friend, next door neighbor, said he's working with him and for him. I needed to go talk to him. Just I don't care what you think about your program, go talk to him. So I went in and spent 30 minutes with him and immediately changed my major into adult and continuing education. 
spent the last three or four years in the master's PhD program with him, working under him, uh, and obviously changed my life completely. And can you give us can you give us a little bit of Knox's contribution and what what types of research, like what was he pioneering back then? Well, he was he was absolutely in adult learning how adults learn and change that was his thing but he also become vice chancellor of continuing education at the university of illinois in addition to being a professor so for all of us that were there in graduate school together and that included don moore that included floyd pennington and myself and nancy bennett and pat walsh whom you probably don't know he sort of dropped out of this but several people were there together and we all worked together. And so all the things that he was doing within the university in adult learning and trying to change some of the curriculum so it was available to people in the community as well as continuing professional education. And that's what he wanted me to study was continuing professional education. And so uh, Floyd Pennington and I both liked that so much that we both jumped into it. And he put us in a, what they called a joint dissertation process which I'd never heard of, but which allowed us to look at uh, the program development process in continuing professional education. And he assigned three different professions to each of us. And then we did a tour of Big Ten institutions and went and interviewed people about the continuing professional education process. How did they go about designing, implementing, evaluating activities for adults? And why is it different than it would have been for children or in in graduate school or for, for kids. And so um, we did that and ended up writing two separate dissertations on the same subject. And then Alan's idea was, when you're done with that, the first thing you have to do is write a journal article. And you cannot leave the program until you've written that journal article. So we combined together to write the journal article and immediately got invited to this, this I believe it was the second meeting ever of the Alliance for Continuing Medical Education. We were invited to speak about our dissertation to that group. So we went, I think it was New Orleans, I'm not positive about that, but um, we went and gave a talk about continuing education, uh, adult learning principles, and the effect on professionals and how we could change the way we designed, implemented, and evaluated these kind of activities to have more impact on, on healthcare, which is basically where that whole idea started and where we sort of took off from there. But so that's how it all started. But Alan was, Alan would have us involved in every single thing he did. And he was the kind that would come to your desk and say, you have 10 minutes. Yes, I have walk with me over to the gym. I have to pick up my stuff to come back here to work out later. So we got a good 10 minutes we can. And he was always doing that and involving us in meetings. And then of course, teaching us and then having us teach so uh, you just could not have had somebody better to as a role model in adult learning and someone who we obviously respect enormously and still do. And I can tell you, having worked with him a year or so ago, he's still so far in advance of me. I, I can't keep up with him. Never could and still can't. But God, it's fun trying. So, so context of the time, we're talking 75, 76? No, earlier than that, 72 to 74, something like that. Okay. And, and um, so global context, we've got Vietnam War mired 
right? Not yep, quite coming to an end. Um, returning casualties. I, I, similarly, we've got mandatory, the birth of mandatory CME. Like you're yes. in the midst of all that, right? We're yes. trying to figure out whether this is a learning journey that needs to be mandated or regulated or whether this is a learning science. And so you go to that first Alliance meeting and um, well, Alliance meetings have 1500 people and an exhibit hall and medical education companies. Not <laughs> okay, so can you give us, what did the Alliance meeting in, in the mid early seventies look like? Well, I, as I said, I think it was the second one ever. As I recall, there might have been 30 or 40 people there. And it was a good percentage of the people were physicians. That first of all, that's the leadership of it. Um, not all of the people were physicians, but most of them were. And, um, and they listened intently. I think they, they very much liked what they heard from Floyd and me. And they invited us to participate in the organization. The organization, as I understand it, from the people who helped start it, was by invitation only. I mean, it was people sat around the table and said, who should we involve? And they started naming different uh, deans around the country, associate deans in medical schools and, and other folks that were doing this kind of work. And they invited them in. And so they talked to Floyd and me at that point and said, we'd really like you to be involved in, in the organization. So I don't think I missed another meeting until one of our grandkids was born 40 years later, so, or whatever number of years. And but it was very small and very, very informal. Like what you hear on the Alliance podcast? Visit almanac.acehp.org to read the latest news and insights for healthcare continuing education professionals. Visit today to get informed and inspired. You and I have talked about this uh, a little bit in the past. So you have at that point continuing education, which is um, a newer concept. G generally at that point, I think it's fair to say that most clinicians saw continuing education as how you learn new advances in medicine because once you graduate from medical school, you're a clinician, right? So the general gestalt at that time is that a clinician their competency is flatlined from the time they leave and they just have to pick up new science. So the importance of learning maybe wasn't as um, ominous at the day, but of those clinicians, few, if any, maybe none, were adult learning experts prior to you, Floyd, and Alan kind of adding that scientific, the, that, that scholarly uh, flavor to the recipe at that point. It was just really smart docs realizing they needed to teach other docs, but not necessarily knowing how to teach best. Is that fair? Yeah. And there was another element in there, and that had to do with the mandatory continuing education that physicians were suddenly facing mandatory CME requirements where they had to get 30 hours every three years or whatever it was way, way back. And so it became, it, the profession grew as a result of that, uh, in that more people were providing that because more people were willing to take that and even pay money to come to it on occasions uh, because it was mandatory. And of course, there was this debate raging in graduate school about 
the benefits and drawbacks of mandatory continuing education of any kind. Yeah. Uh, and so we didn't actually know what we felt about any of that. None of us who were the, uh, Alan had had some experience in continuing education health professions, but none, Floyd and Don and myself, uh, we come out of very, very different backgrounds, but none of it in, in healthcare. So we had no idea about some of these issues. And so the first um, experiences we had were with Alan and dealing with some physicians until we went out from the University of Illinois into our jobs. And then what happened is that's where the jobs were because there was mandatory continuing education. So the, the medical schools and especially societies and the state medical societies sort of led the way. That's where the people were that were dealing with all this. And so, you know, we got involved in it and we were trying to say, what, what is it? And most of our, I can remember the first few experiences I've had many times the first 10 years in my profession was listening to what they were trying to do and trying to figure out how what I learned before could be brought into that to improve the process. Because I was pretty convinced that what I saw in terms of end products of continuing education was not effective at all. And nobody, but nobody was talking about measuring whether there was any effect on it, let alone designing it to have that effect. Right, None and so, so, you know, the, well, this is either gonna be a nine hour podcast or a series of them. I, I, I feel like that every time I talk to you. So uh, I, I heard a couple things there, right? You've got mandatory CME that people are willing to pay for, which now just started a, a business opportunity. And so Lou Miller and Dennis Wentz come at it a little bit from that perspective yep. to say there's, there's an opportunity here for us to meet it, to, to supply a, a, a demand that's growing. Um, we have multiple dozens, maybe even hundreds of lawsuits at that time. How dare you make me take mandatory CME? I'm a clinician. That, that pushback raged. There's an undercurrent of that activism at the time. That um, still existed, by the way. In my last professional job at ACC, there was still a, a percent of, of uh, cardiologists, and I would say it's probably a pretty small percent, but there was a percent in various states around the country that were saying there's no way in the world you should be mandating any continuing education requirements for me. And, and if you and, don't do that, then I'm not giving my money to your organization. Right. And maintenance of certification, like like that was gasoline on the fire several years ago. So I'm, those themes, I feel like those themes, here we are 40 years later, those themes are still in place. The idea of program development as like, if there's gonna be mandatory CME, then we wanna make sure it's effective. We wanna make sure it's productive. We wanna make sure it's efficient. And so we need to begin with the end in mind and develop this plan. Well, here we are in 2020, and you know there, there are now these, you must take uh, age-related CME in certain states. You must take opioid CME in certain states. You must take pain and hospice-related CME in certain states. And there's this, this continued fracturing of the plan. Do you feel like if we sit back in 2020 and say a clinician graduating from medical school, that there, is, there are rails in place for that clinician 
to be scaffolded and guided for their professional career, ensuring that the mandated CME is the right training opportunities, professional development opportunities. Like, does, is there, there isn't a global program in place yet. And so how do you feel like we've cracked that nut or, or where are some um, shiny silver objects? Where are some bright spots? Um, of course, we're jumping all over the place, temporally speaking. Yep. We're jumping, you know, 40 years later. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to be missing some things that happened along the way. Uh, but to be able to explain it, the last job, the last full-time job I had in CME, as I mentioned, was American College of Cardiology. And the reason I took that, and that's after I left Duke University as an associate dean, and I took the job as chief learning officer up at ACC, was because I realized they had everything in place they needed to actually do it right. And so my four years there were spent in what I thought was the penultimate of places. And if they couldn't do it, then it just couldn't be done. And it seemed to me, I was at the end of my career and I promised that I would give them two years, but I didn't promise any more than two. I lasted four years and I probably should have stayed another four years or maybe five or six, um, but that didn't happen. But yes, and the reason I say that they had everything that it took to do this was because there, there were basically three things I think that um, they had talked about and we did create a competency-based curriculum. So that was one thing and I'll yep. go back to that if you want. The second thing is they already had a series of medical guidelines. So there were guidelines in place and these guidelines, there were 40 or 50 of them, each of them 300 to 500 pages long telling physicians exactly what they needed to do in various cases. So it gave them the answers to how to practice care. And then on top of that, they had the registries. Right. And I'm, I said, oh my God, you've got everything it takes. And so um, to answer your question, when I was there, which was 97 to 2000, no, wait a minute. Uh, 07 to 2011. Yeah, to 2011. That four years, um, I think we did make progress in creating those things. Uh, but it was, it, it, it was so silly that my first questionnaire was, can I see the curriculum that you're providing cardiologists? And they said, well, what do you mean by curriculum? And I said, well, all the content that you're providing people. I just want to see a list of it. Oh, well, we'll bring in all the 50 live meetings and we can look at the outlines. I said, yeah, that, that, that's it. And then the annual meeting, it's this huge thing. I said, how huge is it? They said, 30 some thousand people. I said, excuse me? <laughs> I just couldn't get my head around that. And so we sat down with that. And I said, okay, that's, that's everything that's out there. But how did, those how did those content areas get there? Oh, Dr. Jones has been running this meeting for 40 years. So all the content that was put in place through the annual meeting, well, the annual meeting is a separate story, but sure. the, the, the live programs that they had was there because a given physician at some point in time took the bull by the horns and said, I'm going to do that meeting. And so I said, okay, well, 
what's going on? Well, before you got here, we realized, and this is when Marsha was there, we realized that uh, these physicians that took these courses as chairs actually became owners of the course. And I don't mean conceptually owners, I meant literally owners. Yeah, in both ways. And they weren't about to give any of that up. Right, right. So, so, we, so we have, we have and I, I, in many ways, I think we have, if we were to try to dig into the barriers to change, we have uh, status quo, we have inertia, we have financial um, expectations. I, I think all these things still limit us today. And we, we have this environment in which so much continuing medical education, uh, gosh, I, I, you could probably convince me 90% of continuing education is disconnected and like I, I refer to as open loop or pushed based, even if it's coming from- How much, what percent? I'd say close to 90. Yeah, I would go higher. Yeah. And, and, and so you do have like small groups, uh, you know, working with AAP where within certain- areas within AAP, certain special subspecialty areas, they may yes. have a competency framework and a curriculum. Yep. I feel like um, you have some experience with AO North America. I feel like yeah, you've oh, done yeah, some stuff. 10 years. Yeah, yeah so, years now. right, but, but, but by and large, the relationship between a learner and the content is a learner's choice or a habit, not a defined need barely a defined want, quite often a defined like. <laughs> I like going to this meeting. Like how- until, until registries got involved. Okay. The registry involvement, in my opinion, was the thing that sort of tipped it over for ACC at that point to where the leadership of ACC started listening to what I was saying a little closer and thought, oh my God, maybe we do. When I got there, they had taken all the educational functions and thrown them all over the college just to give them to someone to take responsibility yep. for. And they said, the first thing they said is, pull them all back together. They need to be pulled together. And so I did that. But the one thing that I wanted to have under education that I couldn't succeed in getting were these registries I kept hearing about. So I got into the whole history of the registries and someone else was involved in the registries probably the right kind of people and it but so how you're going to get access to those registries changed it wasn't going to be underneath our purview but they were available to us if we knew how to figure out how to do it right but that was the key because that's where we started showing physicians what they didn't know and with mandatory education there at that point um they had a need to know what they didn't know and registry data gave it to the college and to them without them having to do any additional work because we own the registries and the government had mandated the use of many of these registries if you were gonna receive any Medicare reimbursements. Right. So they had to be involved. Once they got involved and we took registry data to them in their practice settings and said, how do you think you're doing as it relates to treatment of X? They would say, oh, we're doing, we're doing great. That's not what the data tell us. What data? And we share the data. Well, that's not data about us. Yeah, there are, and we said, yes, it is. Here's the numbers. Once you got them to that level, 
they start saying, well, hell, we got to fix that. And the cardiologists are very good at doing that, as you probably know. Once they realize there's a problem, they want to get it fixed. Uh, Guande writes about this beautifully, about going into taking all the health data from Texas and going health system by health system and walking in and saying, you know, you're, you're spending eight times as much and you've got twice the morbidity and mortality for X, Y, and Z. And saying this big cowboy doctor with a cowboy hat sat up and said, you don't know anything about t medicine in McAllen, Texas. And he's like, yes, I do. In fact, I know medicine in every single county in Texas. And, and he said, for weeks, this, this uh, chief operating officer, lead physician of the healthcare system just kept telling him how different a hip replacement was in McAllen, Texas. It's different than any other place in the world. And he, like, he, like that idea of showing someone the data. Now, there's limitations to that, Joe, right? Sure. The registries you have, you know, at best case, maybe there's 30 or 60 of them in defined clinical areas in hypertension. And you can try to parse that data out for hypertension in different age groups, but is it idiopathic hypertension? Well, okay, now the data gets a little bit weaker and you, you get down and down, but it's a great starting point. I think it may, you know, in a perfect world, let's kind of uh, crystal ball it for a second, right? Could continuing medical education be a truly efficient closed loop process? absence of guidelines, registries, a competency framework, and a curriculum. If you don't have those four things, will we reach arite? Will, will we find ourselves in a place where the hours and energy and time and expenses that are being um, allocated to continu continuing medical education are moving the health system forward? I don't think you can, but I think there, there are ways of doing it, and we've certainly uh, not had, I mean, most of the continuing medical education I've seen in my life, and I've seen it from every setting, I've been involved as a consultant or uh, a staff person in every provider type there is. So I've seen it from every angle. And as a consultant, just to sort of bring the story of guidelines up to date, in a big health system in Texas, once again, two years ago, uh, we were working because two hospitals were sort of merging together. A county health system or a county hospital that was treating um, some of the worst cases in Texas and a big academic medical center who was treating other issues decided that they needed to pull together. And so they had, I, they had me in to talk to the people in the community hospital, and it was larger by the numbers of people it treated by far, about how they went about doing what they're doing. Now, they don't have access to those things we're talking about. So we looked at it a little bit differently. I said, well, um, you guys in the health system are creating goals for the health system. You're being looked at by organizations all the time. You have to set up goals. You have to try to reach goals. You have to share data. Can I, you know, all to do with the quality of healthcare being provided at your institutions, correct? Yeah, we do. We have all kinds of, go talk to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. So run around, talk to them. And certainly they had it. So working with the, the staff that was there, we figured out a way to look at what were the major 
goals of that healthcare organization in terms of improving treatment, reducing costs, reducing medical errors, all those kinds of things. We said, okay, now can we take another look at another piece of this? Well, what do you want to look at? Can we look at your internal Grand Rounds activities, which is the only CME they've had, but they've had it routinely for years and years, and they're damn proud of it. Can we look at the content of those? And we will then try to make a match between the content of those things and the things you say are important in terms of having an impact on quality of care and see if we can make a connection. And I thought we might get some of this maybe sure. or a little. There were two ships passing in the night. The whole history of how the educational content came to bear had no relationship whatsoever to the people who were in charge of quality care and trying to figure out how to improve care at that institution. But when we sat down and talked to them about it, and they just put together this new education committee with our guidance, everybody turned and said, oh my God, of course we have to do that. So my whole point of that is once you can figure out a way to do it in whatever setting you're in and get people to realize the value of doing it and, and how much money is being wasted, that's another big issue with the pharma companies, as you well know, they no longer want to give money to CME providers because no one was giving them outcomes data. And it's, it's no different everywhere with, with us looking. And I think when we come out of this pandemic and all of that, we're going to be relooking at how we provide healthcare. And I think it's going to be another opportunity for CME to get placed in an appropriate place so that it can have the kind of impact we want. Being an Alliance member has its perks. From discounts to industry-leading events like the Alliance Annual Conference to members only access to the Alliance Learning Center. The Alliance is where healthcare CE professionals come to learn. Visit acehp.org slash membership to join today. There are a couple things that you just said in, in that last answer. Um, you know, I talk about open loop or uh, push-based continuing medical education, and I often get pushback from people that are in like healthcare systems or like, well, you know, we're closed loop and there are employees and our grand rounds is aligned with our quality departments. That sounds good. Sounds close to what you were just describing. Um, and then they often add that last piece, which is we're damn proud of these things too. And I always ask like, where'd you validate your pride? Like you can be damn proud if you said we intended to do X and we went, we looked at the data and we did X, then by all means be damn proud. Wear a crown around your hospital. I think at that point, if that was the reality, I think a lot more CME departments wouldn't be in the basement. They'd be on the third floor right, east. Right. And they wouldn't be run by uh, an assistant dean. They'd be the healthcare system would have a chief learning officer. Yep. If we delivered on the opportunity in education, then I think the organizations and the learners that we serve would see the rapid learning healthcare system as being our skill set and connecting all those dots. Um, and the second thing you said is when you should, when you actually connected the dots, very high touch, Joe on site connecting the dots for them. That 
case study I wish we could replicate 5,500 times in healthcare systems around this country. Um, and specifically in the case study, that oh my God moment, because I can almost guarantee you that there are thousands and thousands of instances where the wrong champion uncovered the unpleasant truth and the owners of the decision felt it was in their best interest to ignore it and the oh my god moment vanished and well, so let, let me tell you what happened with at, at acc i was never more excited than when the group came back from the community hospital down in southern virginia uh, that had as one of the physicians somebody who would eventually become a president of acc so he was very supportive of all this took it down to his group because they had the data for his group and they got the the group to say oh my god this is us we have to do something about this so the staff then which wasn't me because i was being asked to do other things i couldn't go down there so the staff my staff went down and it was very interesting. The report I got at the end of that was that, okay, we agreed that we're going to have to help you create some learning experiences to meet this. So we're going to share with you the learning experiences we already have. Now, I've already explained to you where they came from. Right. There is no rationale in the world that those learning experiences were designed with these gaps in mind. We can't use those things. We're gonna to have to design new programs based on what these gaps are. And that was an aha moment for us to say, yeah, we took it this far. We didn't know we'd get this far, but we did. Now we gotta to jump to the next level, which is now we gotta be able to design activities based on the data that we have and do it in such a way that it's gonna be different than their weekly one hour grand rounds that everybody's so proud of. And you know, when I was at Duke, they had 210, something like that, grand round series. 210, most of them weekly, some of them twice a week, some of them once every two weeks, but 210 grand round series. When Harry Gallus and I were working there, after I'd been there and we came, both came back as consultants there, one of our goals was to try to get somebody in some department to realize that just going, having somebody, it's usually the chief resident, is tasked with putting the CME calendar together for the year. So we interviewed a number of them. Where did they go? To the pharma companies to say, what do you have available? We don't wanna spend a lot of money on this. Oh no, we'll cover the cost. And so that's what they brought in. And we said, okay, but what if you, you're already looking at quality of care provided by your physicians in this health system. What if we looked at that and used that to drive program money? And, you know, some of them would say, get out of here. And others would say, well, that's an interesting concept. And a couple of them said, yeah, let's try that. So no single approach is going to work. But until you make that connection between quality of care being given by some institution and the output of that, which needs to be some kind of educational activity that will help physicians do that in a more effective way, that can all be measured until we can get there. I don't care what else is going on. It's not going to make any difference. I want to jump back to this alliance meeting in the 70s run by physicians. And then um, 
over time, we got to a place where business managers are running CME departments. I, I think I've heard that there was kind of a golden era in the early 80s where there was this brain trust of adult learning specialists and educational psychologists who often found themselves or in several key cases found themselves working hand in hand with a clinician dean. And so you have the clinical expertise and you have the educational expertise and they're building the program and they're establishing the curriculum. Is, is, that, is there any truth to that kind of uh, parable of a golden era in continuing medical education? Uh, I'm not sure I would call it a golden era. Okay. It sort of depends on your definition of a golden era. Were there some theoretical breakthroughs? Was there a different way of approaching this that sort of worked in some places? Absolutely. Um, but they didn't last long because they depended on individuals who were in positions to make that sort of thing happen. And when I went to Sharp Healthcare as an example, um, Howard Robin was a physician that hired me. I turned around and hired him as the medical director. So we set up this little cabal that we've had for 40 some years now. But because of that, we were able to do things and we actually won an award with the Alliance, but it wasn't too long before I then left. Howard went and did something else. And, you know, it sort of, <clears throat> he stayed a lot longer than I did, but it sort of depends on having the right kind of people in place, but you had really good people in the right places with the right kind of people working on all this. So yes, there was a time when it went from none of that existing to a lot of that existing in various places. But what I, what I remember <laughs> at one point I kept thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to another meeting as a leader of a CME thing at ACC. I probably would attend 10 of those a year in which the CME community would come together and talk about how we needed to make changes and how are we going to do it? And it was time and time again. And part of the reason was everybody heard about these things going on, but they weren't replicatable or at least it did a lot of replication wasn't going on because other people that wanted to do it didn't have the things in place that they needed which led us to the final conclusion that we got to put more energy into organizational development of the CME providers, whoever they are in whatever setting they're in, because it's not just the staff and it's not just somebody who's good and some physician that you talk into being involved in it. The organization's got to be behind it. If the organization isn't behind it, understanding what it's about, you're not going to make any progress. If it is the person in the situation, and we've heard six or seven names today over 40 years of, of these kind of educational psychologists, educational leaders who, were, who, who arose from Knox and from these early programs, like why, why can't we find the next several generations of those organizational leaders, those educational macro planners, like the, the folks that should be driving it, where did they go? Uh, you mean, where have they gone? Where are they now? Where are they sitting? Where, how can't we, can't we find them? I, I tell me if I'm wrong. Did, no, I, did, I don't think exist? you are wrong. 
did they exist? Like, I think I've joked with you before that 10, 10, 12 years ago now, I created this like story about the gray hairs are leaving us. They're all here still, thankfully, but there's still not another generation of the, the, the practitioner sciences, scientists or the research scientists and CME that are supposed to be learning from what you uh, originally, you know, like what you've been doing in the 70s and 80s and 90s and building on that branch of science, building on that branch of organizational psychology, building on that branch of, of educational planning and leadership. Did well, think of where all the education has been targeted for us in the CME profession. Okay. It gets targeted at staff people in a CME operation. And it's usually lower level staff who are just coming in new and some upper level staff. But even when you have people that have been in CME for quite a while in their setting, they typically come to the meetings, but they don't always go to activities. You know, they get together with their colleagues and friends and brainstorm how they could do whatever. Sure. But it, there's not a curriculum targeted necessarily at them. And the over, and as I heard when I was president of the Alliance, the number of people who drop out of the profession every year was something like 20 to 30%. So there's a turnover rate of 20 or 30% of these staff all over the country in these organizations. And even at the top, it's significant. And you're not getting physicians involved very much anymore in the leadership of these organizations. And the target is content around adult learning principles, and not that I'm opposed to that in any way, shape, or form, but it's not around organizational development, how to make sure your organization can put together something that makes sense, setting up models so that I would think the most important thing going forward for the Alliance could be, I don't know that I've convinced anybody of it, but the specialty groups that exist already, the hospital systems, the healthcare systems, the specialty societies, all of those different groups, instead of just meeting together because they all do the same thing every year, they have an hour or two hour meeting or four hour meeting, whatever, and then they go off and do their things and learn all this other content. They're not creating models, they're not testing those models, they're trying, not trying to figure out how they can change the nature of their organization to be able to do that, how they can become invaluable in the organizations in which they work. That's a curriculum that doesn't exist yet. And it needs to. And I, I take people back to when Francis Maitland was in charge of the Alliance and the ACCME at the same time. And I was working very closely with her because I was in the project that was trying to create a book that would be the basis for the guidelines and principles we'd use in continuing education, at least in accreditation. And it, it just... I go back to that time and I think, oh my God, we could have done something, but uh, it, it just, what she said at that point, what she had to say is that the ACCME would take the accreditation process and the Alliance would take training of staff. Okay, what about the training of the provider organizations? how they can do things better in their organization. How do they deal with the Dean's office? How do they, all that kind of stuff is what Harry and I have come out of our experiences with saying, that needs to happen. And I'm more than willing to help, but nobody's there to listen. I, I, I would agree. I, I, feel, I feel like there is a, a 
pretty, if we had a registry, right? Yes. Our, our registry would glaringly obviously tell us that there is uh, a strength in accreditation rules and regulations. I agree. There is a strength in, in tactical operations, meeting planning, implementation have it. of interventions. There is, um, maybe I'd give us a C minus or D on content development and maybe a D or D minus on educational science, instructional design. Both of those two, I agree. Right, so, but, and, and Hillary Schmidt and others are focused in that area and, but I don't know that we have even a seat at the table in terms of getting a grade. It's a, it's a, what do they fit? What do they call it? It's a, a not yet determined, like no grade can be offered. It is, please return for the next semester. It, it's just my pathway in the CME world has been so unusual because I didn't work in one place for 30 years. I worked in 12 or 15 places in 40 years. And because of that, I saw it from all kinds of different angles. So I am extremely lucky in, in seeing it from every angle possible. I mean, I was one of the first on the ACCME Review Committee, uh, who was a non-physician, and we put together the, uh, the guidelines out of our book. I mean, that was an amazing opportunity. And I've just been so lucky to have had the experiences I've had. If you look at other people, they go to one, maybe they go to two, sometimes they may go to three, that's it. And I'm not saying that that isn't the way it should be, but then if that is the way it should be, then we should develop into that curriculum an opportunity for them to spend time in other settings. Because I can tell you my view of the world is based on having seen it from so many angles that most people don't get a chance to do that. And why can't we send someone for a week over to a hospital that they've never been in? I mean, that's what needs to happen. So we'll, we'll, we'll call it Green's, Green's Law, that if your butt is in the same seat for too many years, your view can never change. And therefore you're limited to what you can accomplish. So, so let me finish before we both sound like just cantankerous, uh, <laughs> get off my lawn kind of uh, folks here. Because this, so, so I, I have a thought about why we're here. Um, I don't have a solution yet. I, but my thought, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, is there's a lot of very, very smart, very, very well-intentioned individuals in this community um, who as all of us do, operate in fast thinking mode. And so the same folks that would say they're damn proud of their grand rounds, or you know, at some moment after weeks and weeks of data manipulation, calculation and bootstrapping, finally get their oh my God moment. The lessons I learned from those two things are that those folks don't know. They don't know, they don't think through these things. They, they're used to it, they, they find, data that validates them and, um, and aligns with their schema 
ego id, organizational ego, organizational id, but they don't necessarily understand and have the perspective to ask the questions about are we good enough or is someone better and how do we get better? And that, that irrationality that we see in every part of our lives, I feel like that irrationality has strangled this community and many others, but this community, since we're talking about it, for 30 plus years in, in many, well, many ways. One of the questions you could ask that's indicative of that, I think, is how much collaboration has gone on among CME provider types of a similar type to say, hey, we've discovered something and now we're gonna make it available to all of our colleagues in this arena and we're gonna set up studies and we're gonna do you know, outcome studies, et cetera. We're gonna, we're gonna develop our organizational capacity to do this right in this kind of a setting and create a curriculum and actually create a method of evaluating it, how much of that kind of stuff has gone on? Very little to any of it because all those meetings we come to, where do you go afterwards? You go back home and fight the battles in your home institution to stay alive in your head above water. All right, so, so to wrap up with this absolute thrilling conversation, the, <laughs> the, our, we, we, we both believe that the rails and scaffolding that's required for truly impactful continuing education professional development are those four things you laid out, like data source, there needs to be a competency framework, there needs to be a curriculum, um, uh, you have to, and, and there needs to be the evidence base or the guidelines, like that idea. And, and that can be taken at a specialty level, at a professional level, it can be taken at an and organization. It would, all, it would look differently and different in every level. But yes, you have to have that and you have to build your structures depending on what kind of an environment you're in, who you have inside the organization to do this. But yes. And within our own profession, we don't have the registry. We, we have a competency framework that's evolved for the last eight or nine years, which I, I respect. I think there's a lot of good stuff in that competency framework. Um, we don't have the curriculum, to your point, and it's certainly not a targeted enough curriculum so that different people in different environments can move towards that competency We have framework. a curriculum. We don't have that component of the curriculum. Yes. Yeah. And, and then I, I, I think it's fair to say we, we really don't have the guidelines that we need. Um, we, and where there is science and there, where, where there is evidence, I don't know that this community has been open to it. Right, Learn, learning science and instructional design science, like those other areas that we gave bad grades to, <laughs> I, I think in, in cases there is evidence there, not in a formalized guideline, certainly not in a formalized guideline for healthcare professionals in education, but there's a lot of science that's out there that we can learn from. We, we, I, I gave a talk a few months ago that, that kind of connected everything we as a profession need to understand about learning science which we seem open to, but haven't really made the commitment to. Everything our organization needs to understand about data science, which is a world, a universe in and to itself, that we have very few talented um, community members. Um, there's the whole world of implementation science, which you've dabbled your toes into over time, and knowledge transfer and all of this world and that, that kind of organizational psychology, change management. And it's the last piece, which is the behavioral science. I so feel I'll, like end with what, I'll end with the best book I've ever read. 
Okay. I don't know if it still is because I've read a lot since then, but it certainly was at the time. The Fifth Discipline by Peter Sengen. And that's, that's the organizational component. They have to have leaders doing the right thing within those organizations to bring about the kind of organizations that are needed to do the job that's needed. And if you don't have any of that, you can have all the rest of that. And it won't make a bit of difference in terms of how that gets perceived in that healthcare organization. It's going to be at the bottom of the list, which it starts at, and you're not going to, you're not going to get up to the level where you're actually making a difference in the quality of healthcare and you can prove it and everybody knows you're doing it. That isn't happening and it needs to. Let's end it there. I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm sure you and I will talk shortly um, and may even convince you to come back for another episode. Um, any, any final parting shots for this day? Uh, stay well, healthy, stay, stay happy? Yeah, I think that's probably at this point in time. And I actually am beginning to feel for the first time in several months, I'm beginning to feel that it's so bad right now on so many dimensions that I've never experienced, can't even explain to my grandkids, let alone my kids, but my grandkids can't explain it to them because never been through it, that I think maybe we can make some progress out of this because it's so bad. And I'm gonna throw the CME world into the middle of that too. We've done a lot of things in 40 years, a ton of things are available that weren't available back then. If we add a couple of other dimensions over the next 10 years, I think we can begin to make the impact we've all wanted to make as a profession, not just in individual cases, but as a profession that we need to make. Thank you for listening to the Alliance podcast, Continuing Conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to stay informed on future releases. In the meantime, we invite you to access our wealth of content for healthcare continuing education professionals on the Almanac at almanac.acehp.org. Until next time.